Welcome to Brain in the Vat. So we have a wonderful returning guest, Aaron Fasser. Um, if you haven't watched this episode on the value of life, I suggest you go and watch it immediately. Um, but Aaron's going to be talking to us about um, a really fascinating topic. Uh, he's one of these um, excellent individuals with many, uh, with many uh, different passions, one of which is in the philosophy of religion. Um, so Aaron, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Imagine that you are a new tenant that's just arrived at like a recently developed high-rise building. And you arrive there all excited to move in. And as you move in and you go to find your, your room or your apartment number, um, you start getting approached by um, a number of the other tenants and they all represent um, tenant associations. You know, these are these, you know, those groups that you have to organize the, the rights for, for tenants and to make sure everything runs nicely for the tenants. But in this particular building, there are a number of tenant associations. Um, and they all kind of approach you and they want you to be a part of their tenant association. Um, and they all give you a different like sales pitch, essentially. Um, one of them comes up to you and says, you know, they, they've got a really good relationship with a uh, landlord. Um, and he gives you this description of the landlord. And uh, he also has with him a copy of the, of the landlord's regulations for how he wants the tenants to, to behave while they uh, stay in the building. Um, and he says, look, I mean, if you like our association, come and come and, and join us and we'll make sure that everything's uh, uh, hunky-dory for you. Um, and, then, and so it goes with each different tenant association comes to you, um, essentially making a, a sales pitch for why you should join their, their association. But the problem is, is that as you start to listen to these different tenant associations, you realize that they're all telling you very different and conflicting stories. So for example, one representative um, tells you that there's one landlord. Um, another one tells you that there's actually a committee of landlords. Um, they also can't seem to disagree um, amongst themselves as to what is the nature of this landlord. Is it a man? Is it a woman? Um, is she old? Is he young? Um, and they also can't agree over what um, prescriptions that this landlord has, for example, um, for you with respect to other tenants, with respect to your relationship with the landlord or committee of landlords. Um, and so it's a really, from, a, from, a, from an epistemic perspective, deciding which tenant association to join is, is really difficult. Um, they were all making these, these, these contradictory claims. Um, so that's the first, the first concern that you have, is like, how do you, I mean, how do you just go about picking you know, which tenant association to join? Um, but there seems to be like a, a deeper problem and it relates to one specific tenant association. So one of these association representatives comes to speak to you and they say they're absolutely categorical um, that they have been in touch as one landlord and this landlord has a very peculiar set of properties. He's exceptionally, exceptionally powerful. I mean, he's the one that actually designed and erected and had the financial clout to to build the high-rise building itself. So he's not just the landlord, he's in fact the developer and builder and designer of this, of this building. Um, he's also exceptionally knowledgeable, so he didn't outsource it to anybody else, he did it himself. Um, and he, you're told by the representative of this tenant association that um, he, he specifically did this so that he could have a deep and meaningful personal relationship with every single one of 
um, the tenants that lives in the building because um, he's this really, really great guy. Um, and when you're told this story, there's like a, there's a deeper problem that seems to emerge, right? The question now is not whether you should just, you know, based on what these people are saying, join this association. There's a, there's a deeper question about whether there could even be such a landlord as is described by this association. And you start to reason as follows. You say, well, look, I mean, if, if the building was built by this, this landlord and he designed it and he sustains it and he, um, his goal for this having this building is that he wants to have this individual personalistic relationship with every single tenant, it's really strange, right, that there's all these other tenant associations. I mean, doesn't he know that there are other tenant associations that are like misrepresenting who he is or um, misdescribing who he is and saying and leading people astray to, to um, uh, with respect to their relationships and their obligations towards him or their, the other tenants? Um, maybe he can't do anything about it. Maybe he's not as powerful as this, um, this, this representative says, or maybe he just doesn't know what's going on in the building. You know, maybe he's um, limited in that way, or, or maybe he just doesn't care that much about um, the people in the building, let alone having this deep and meaningful relationship with everybody. Um, and so what you, and this, is, this becomes even more um, pressing for you when you start to reason in this way, because you know, you're told that this, this uh, landlord, he decides who moved in in the first place. You know, he had everybody's tenant profile, so to speak. So um, he could easily like, call a meeting and um, set the record straight. He could um, remove people from, from the building who are misrepresenting his goals and intentions and his nature. There are a variety of things that he could do which um, would remedy the situation and prevent you know, this kind of pandemonium about trying to figure out who he is and, and what he wants from everybody. So you start to reason in this way and ultimately you conclude um, in the thought experiment, the, the intuition of the thought experiment is that you conclude that, look, what, what, whatever landlord there may be, if there is one, it can't be this particular landlord with, the, with this particular set of properties. And if you find that line of reasoning convincing, then you have been convinced by what I call the argument from doxastic discord or the argument from uh, divergent or incongruent beliefs. The force of the thought experiment is to take the case of the landlord, the sort of this architect, and say, well, this parallels with a divine deity, right? That the, the, the claim of the divine deity is that it is all good, all loving, um, all knowing, and, and the creator as well. And we are faced with a world where we have many different religions who have um, conflicting visions of what this deity would be like. And given that variety of faiths, we can then logically deduce certain things about the character of this deity if it exists. And we might say, well, there's something odd about claiming that the deity wants to have a relationship with you while at the same time allowing all of these uh, booby traps to be placed in the world where there's all these dead ends that you would be going to because there's all these faiths that aren't going to let you have a relationship with the deity because they're all false. 
Um, at least some of them must be false. Uh, maybe some of them could be kind of reconciled with each other. Maybe there's a sort of set of faiths where we say, well, this is one of these is fine. Um, but there's others where there's a direct contradiction. And so that gives us some indication about the character of, of that deity. Is it open to the religious person to say, well, maybe you're right. Maybe um, God does have certain character traits that we you know, um, have to now buy. Um, one of them is a coyness. Um, so God sort of thinks, well, you know, I don't just want a relationship with anyone. I want a relationship with someone who's a real truth seeker, who's willing to find the needle in the haystack, you know, willing to put in the hard yards and, you know, decipher all of these, you know, false faiths till they eventually come to me. And then we can be together and then we can have this enriching relationship. I don't want to have a relationship with the plebs that are going to buy into, you know, uh, the panoply of false faiths out there. We've got to get clear about the sort of God that we're, that we're talking about or that's motivating this kind of reasoning and the kind of God that most people believe in. Um, the kind of God that we're talking about here is a kind is classically known as theist, a theistic person, right? I mean, it's this theistic personalism. And the idea is that this is a conscious being who has certain properties. Um, you mentioned some of them, the so-called omniperfect properties, omnipotence, omniscience, and omnibenevolence. But the thing is, is that we actually think that part of the omnibenevolence is, one thing that might be entailed by it, is a kind of superlative and unsurpassable love, right? And um, this is a point that has been emphasized by the philosopher J.L. Schellenberg, um, who, and this is something that theistic philosophers and theistic believers will want to emphasize themselves. You know, there's, we're not just dealing with, you know, this cosmic dictator in the sky. We're dealing with an entity that has unsurpassable empathy, compassion, um, and concern for the created finite beings. In fact, the beings that have been created um, have been created for this express purpose to enter into this very important and very crucial relationship with this deity, right? And it seems what, what you were talking about here is this idea of this coy aspect um, to this God seems prima facie to be intentioned against, um, if not outright contradicted by this kind of overwhelming superlative love, um, which would, at least according to many philosophers, including a philosopher like Charles Schellenberg, um, would be an entity that is always open to relationship with any of his finite creatures. And there's a kind of risk with the coyness, right? There's a kind of risk. Remember that if, if the deity has created finite creatures in order to have a relationship with them and then plays coy, he obviously risks, from his perspective, not culminating or not instantiating that relationship with any individual finite creature. Um, and that means that that finite creature misses out on um, a whole host of instrumental and intrinsic goods. So, so while it, it may, what you're talking about is a, a kind of coy God, a kind of God who, who wants people to put in the work, um, there may be limitations to how far that can go. And we may also genuinely wonder whether a God that would be that way could, would genuinely be perfectly and unsurpassably um, loving or compassionate or um, good towards his finite creatures. Um, especially if that entity also, if you factor in 
um, the idea that that entity might also know that there may very well be a large number of finite persons who go about that task, but come to the wrong conclusions. They fail to instantiate that relationship with the deity um, and uh, miss out on those um, instrumental and intrinsic goods. Um, and they may even be, depending on the sort of, um, maybe this is something we can, we can get into just now, there's different models of God, but it, it seems to get even worse if you start adding in certain uh, punishments for failing to believe, right? Um, not all theistic models are going to have a God that builds in, builds in rewards and punishments, but uh, many of the, the, the monotheistic faiths, and one Christianity springs to mind, there are some pretty severe punishments for um, failing to believe the right things during our brief sojourn on uh, the high-rise building we call planet Earth. The characteristic that Mark um, suggested was coyness. Um, I want to suggest some others. So I'm thinking about kind of a, a mystical conception of love. Um, uh, I, I forgot, uh, Khalil Gibran, yes. Khalil Gibran talks about love as um, not crushing. So it's like holding a butterfly in your hand and you let it go and you see if it comes back. Um, and what's coupled with that is a sense of egolessness. So you just don't worry if people uh, criticize you. Um, and at the same time, you're patient, infinitely patient for that butterfly to come back. So on that, on that, on that conception of, of love, um, you might say God is infinitely loving if he allows his flock to, uh, to, to wander off to other pastures and, 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 and uh, eat from false grass if they want to, and then come back when they want to. And, and he allows that, that they, they uh, get called to by shepherds who spread bad word um, about him. Um, but, but he waits until they come back and he's just secure and confident that he will come back, uh, that, th that his flock will come back. So perhaps if you, if you have that conception of God, it would be consistent, uh, with other, other faiths existing. Yeah. So one of the things though, that we mustn't, um, confuse here is, um, the knowledge of God with the freedom to have the relationship with God. So the one thing that doesn't seem consistent, though, is to, for example, allow a situation such that people could either not even believe that there is a God at all, right? So kind of like a, allow for metaphysical naturalists and atheists to exist. But there's also a kind of problem with allowing a variety of faiths that potentially risk the flock never coming back, right? There's a kind of risk there that it seems a superlative and unsurpassably loving God, even if he allows someone, there, again, there are limits to how far one allows the flock to go, right? One doesn't allow one's flock to wander into the den of the bear or to the den of the wolves. Um, one would be a poor shepherd if one allowed that. And one also would make sure, it seems to me, that if we're talking about what is superlatively loving um, and has concern for the well-being, in this case, the eternal well-being of, of the flock, um, one would always allow the flock to know that you're there. It doesn't have to be in an overbearing way. So in other words, sometimes um, the criticism we will hear from, from theists to this line of arguments will be, well, if we just, it would, it would turn the universe into a haunted house if God was overbearingly obvious to everybody and was getting in everybody's faces and 
But of course, that's a bit of a caricature, right? We, nobody, nobody expects, you know, the Monty Python-esque vision of, of God. I mean, although God, if he's an omnipotent being, could do that. Um, it could be quite subtle and it could be quite, um, it could be quite um, percipient and quite sagacious and quite um, compelling to each individual in a way that wouldn't um, leave doubt that, for example, he exists and that he has the particular nature that he has and he has certain expectations and still leave open a, a vast um, space for the members of the flock, so to speak, to choose to respond to that. Um, but that's not the situation we, we find ourselves in. So I suppose your, your arguments, I think, can give us indications about what the nature of this being could be, but it doesn't strike me as an argument that um, shows that that being doesn't exist. So we might, for example, it, it's, it's perfectly consistent to have the low-key trickster God who says, wouldn't it be hilarious um, if I put all these like false religions out into the world, which are all absolutely batshit crazy, and people are going to fight with each other and kill each other and, you know, argue about how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin or, you know, how many um, aliens were driven into volcanoes by like uh, Lord Zenu. It's hilarious. And I put this thing into motion and I just sit back gleefully and I watch. Um, and then maybe I get bored with my toy and I go and do other things and I stop caring at all. And then I check back in. Like all of that is perfectly consistent with the world that we live in. Um, in other words, it might just be that the kind of God that does actually exist isn't a very nice guy, um, but might very well have been the creator of the universe and set the world's in motion. Um, and that's the God that we happen to have. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right about that. So the thing to notice about this argument, this, this line of argument from the doxastic discord is that it shares many parallels with other classical atheological arguments. So um, the most apparent one is the argument from evil um, and um, the other one is the argument from non-resistant non-belief, which has been um, uh, most rigorously defended by J.L. Schellenberg. Um, now, one natural response to this line of arguments, of course, for the, for the believer is to say, well, the kind of God you're arguing against is not the God that I believe exists, right? So in other words, there are different theistic, con there are different conceptions of God. Um, this line of argument, though, is going to be seems to me is going to be quite powerful against the, what's known as the Anselmian conception of God. And the word Anselmian comes from the um, uh, theologian and philosopher St. Anselm, um, who is well known in the Christian tradition, um, who described God as the greatest conceivable being, right? And the greatest conceivable being, so the tradition goes in, in, in uh, philosophy and theological circles, is one which has all the perfections. Right? That's the classical account. So God is this being um, who has a whole host, a constellation of properties, and there are great making properties. And, what, and a number of those properties are the ones that we've spoken about, like um, omnibenevolence, um, omniscience, and um, omnipotence. Now, of course, that's just one particular strand of, of, of theism, right? If one is prepared to um, abandon one or some, or perhaps even all of those properties, then of course, this line of argument finds no purchase. But then again, we must, that's not a weakness against the argument. In fact, in many respects, one might say that the argument is doing its job, right? 
right? He's forcing the theist, in many respects, to cut his God down to logical size, right? Um, it's forcing him to say, look, you're going, if, you're, if you want to maintain that there is such a being, there's an intellectual price tag, right? That has to be paid. There's a premium that has to be paid. And this is where most theists will want to push back a lot. And they'll want to neutralize the force of the argument um, while still maintaining that there could be this being. In other words, that the states of the world with this doxastic discord and with all of its varieties is, uh, as philosophers might say, compossible with the existence of, of this sort of deity. Um, and there the debate is going to rage about whether there is this logical contradiction. Um, one might, I, I myself am personally persuaded that there is a logical tension there that can't be resolved in favor of theism. But even if I were to say, for example, concede, which I, I, I don't, that there is, a there is no incompatibility. So in other words, you can construct a logically coherent story where the world is as it is with all the doxastic discord and there's a God with all these properties. It nevertheless is a feature or a data that fits much better in a atheological uh, paradigm. That is to say, a paradigm that doesn't hold to this conception of God. Um, but if you're not prepared to have that debate, then one easy way to escape the, the force of the argument is just to say, yes, that's not the God I believe in. The God I believe in isn't that concerned actually with the well-being of conscious creatures or the God I believe in while being very powerful um, isn't omnipotent. You can't do, for example, all that is logically possible. Or he's not, he's, while he's very knowledgeable, there are constraints on his knowledge. Um, and if you relax one, any one of those properties, um, you may escape the force of the argument. So this is, this is an important point, um, that atheism is not the same thing as naturalism, right? So naturalism is a much stronger thesis that would rule out the existence of the supernatural uh, takur, right? just as across the board. Um, so to be a naturalist entails atheism, but one can be an atheist without being a naturalist and denying other conceptions of, of the divine. And you see this, if you want a real life personification of this, you can look no further than um, the philosopher J.L. Schellenberg, who's a, like I've mentioned previously already. Um, he is an atheist with respect to the Anselmian God, but he's agnostic on metaphysical naturalism. Um, so he wants to have scope for alternative conceptions of the divine. Um, and maybe we can talk about um, his core theory because it's a really fascinating, it's a really fascinating um, account um, that may rescue potentially um, some uh, accounts of the divine and rescue um, some form of, of um, belief in the supernatural. If you think that... Um that you have to change your conception of God in order to avoid the argument, um, well, then the argument has worked against a particular conception of God. And that conception of God is the mainstream Christian uh, worldview. So, um, you know, that seems like a powerful argument if you're having to resort to changing your conception of God. And I would like to hear about Schellenberg's argument. Um, 
I have, I have in addition to that, another response to the argument. So you can choose which you want to discuss first. Um, so the response, the response is, um, well, maybe there isn't actually that much divergence in the religions, right? So it looks like they're very different. And when I say, well, this is the Christian view, but there's these other views, there's the Judaic view, there's the Muslim view, um, there's the Hindu view, the Buddhist view, they seem very different, right? Um, at, at first glance, um, but, but uh, 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 you know, mystics will tell you, well, if you were to investigate each uh, if you were to really uh, embroil yourself in the minutia of them and practice all all that they say, all the all the difference becomes chaff that you throw off, uh, and and you get down to the nitty gritty, uh, the core essence of each religion, and they're identical. Um, and there's you know there's all roads re- lead to Rome kind of thing, and and so and so it appears like there's disagreement, but that's only for the uninitiated. Really, underneath. Uh, there's 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 common agreement. Yes, yeah. No, that's it's that is definitely um, a, a, a stance that a number of philosophers might take, and a number of um, people watching the show might take. They might say, "Look, you're just the atheist who, who's putting forward this argument is just kind of taking for granted, as you say, that um, there is doxastic discord, right? But when we look under the hood, as you say." we actually see that what appears to be doxastic discord um, isn't really. Um, and there's a philosopher, John Hick, who puts forward this, this kind of view. Um, and he's got quite a charming analogy, actually. He says, he, tell, he asks for his audience to imagine um, the story of all these, uh, these blind men who are feeling an elephant for the first time, right? And the elephant has the structure that we know it has. But these blind men are feeling different parts of the elephant. So the one feels the trunk and says, you know, what an, and he's asked what an elephant is. And he says, well, it's this long, snaky kind of thing. And then somebody's feeling the leg and asks what an elephant is. He says, no, no, it's actually this really thick tree trunk kind of object. Um, and they all give you a different story about this elephant, right? Um, and yet, obviously, they're each describing an aspect. Right? They're not actually contradicting each other. They're merely describing complementary parts of this elephant. I think this is a very popular, I think it's a yeah. very popular position, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's also seen as very politically correct um, yeah. because you're not contradicting anyone else's worldview by saying mine is correct. You can say yours is correct too. That yeah. for whatever reason has become very fashionable. Um, it's very unfashionable to say, well, there's only one correct view uh, and the rest are incorrect. Yes. So, so what, you're, what you're pointing towards is the debate that rages between, um, one could say, exclusivists or um, uh, pluralists. So an exclusivist would be encapsulated by, there's a, there's a really great Latin phrase from, from uh, Christian tradition, uh, extra ecclesiam villa salus, which translates as outside of the church, there is no salvation. And it really captures the idea that there's, we've got this truth and, you know, everybody else is quite literally be damned. Um, and that stands in contrast to this more, um, what seems to be tolerant view, um, which is this pluralistic view that no, no one person has the truth. We've got all these competing traditions um, that are giving you partial visions or partial participations in, in the divine. 
Um, and it is a very popular, as you say, it's, it's a very uh, popular view. It's very popular amongst um, Gen Z and uh, millennials who don't want to offend other people. Um, but the problem is, is that taken on their own terms, um, it seems to require, in the first instance, a huge amount of revisionism, right? I mean, that, that, that's like a strike right there. You must remember that in the story about the men, the blind men feeling this elephant, they were asked what an elephant is. And in each case, they give contrary descriptions of what an elephant is. None of the blind men themselves take themselves to be giving complimentary accounts. From their own lights, they are themselves giving you an account of what an elephant is. And they can't all be right on that point. And in fact, they're all wrong as to what an elephant is, right? So from the worldviews of the Christian or the worldview of the Muslim or the worldview of the Orthodox Jew, they don't take themselves to the extent that they are Orthodox adherents to be giving partial visions. They take themselves to be giving univocal um, um, accounts of what the divine is. The further thing is that one might think that what is actually achieved if this, if, if this is in fact the case? Remember, the concern here is not to decide who has the right vision for the atheist. The atheist is just pointing to disputation over the nature of the divine. So the subjection actually is more grist for the atheist's mill because what's actually being put forward is an alternative conception of the divine, namely this complementary conception of the divine. But that just adds to the discord. Now, amongst all the competing traditions who are exclusivist, I now also have to take into account this non-exclusivist view as the competitor. Which one is right? Are the exclusivists right or are the pluralists right? So far from putting water on the flames, it seems to only have fanned the flames of doxastic discord. So um, more grist for the atheists more, as I see it. So what's interesting as well is it feels like you wind up with an ad hocism. So you have these sort of things in tension and the theist then has to make certain moves to try and explain away the problem. So for example, you know, Jason gives this idea of the loving shepherd God who lets the, the flock go um, so that one day they'll return. And you say, but hold on, some of those, some of those guys um, died without believing or they died believing the wrong thing. And what happens to them? And so then you can say, well, they get reincarnated. God gives them another go. They, they run through the simulation again and again and again until eventually everybody winds up having this relationship with God. Um, and then we can sort of see, well, now we have this, this loving deity and it's fulfilled its promise. But I've had to now add in an extra supernatural move, which is that there's reincarnation now. So not only um, do, you, do you have a deity, you also have a life after death um, ad infinitum. Um, and again, we have no evidence for this. Um, and so it seems like a lot of the tensions that result um, have to get solved by stranger and stranger moves. And you know, if, you, if you want a kind of, let's say, minimal account of reality, you want to say, look, I only want to believe in the things that I have to. You know, I, I, I see no evidence for pixies and goblins and fairies and that sort of stuff. And maybe they exist and it would be really nice and magical if they did. But in, with, without any evidence for it, I'm not going to start positing them to start solving problems. You know, and, and humanity has a history of positing supernatural entities to solve problems. So you say, 
you know, we're having this drought. Um, so if we dance in a particular way, you know, and it rains, well, that must be because there's a rain God, you know, and so we were able to sort of induce the rain God to make it rain. And, you know, if we do this other thing, then the sun God will do this. And so we posited all these different supernatural entities, you know, to sort of explain away things because we didn't have a good theory for it. Um, and what's happened over time, of course, is that we've gotten better and better theories to account for reality, you know, that um, science has filled in this, this gap. So all the stuff that we kind of didn't have an account of, um, we say, ah, now I understand how that works. There's a reason why there's cyclical seasons, the reason why, you know, the sun comes in this way. And I don't have to buy into the supernatural stuff. Look, I mean, there are still some problems that are unresolved by science, but the gap seems to have narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. I know you guys have had um, uh, Graham Oppie on, and he's discussed um, his views on, on the theoretical um, virtues of naturalism over, over theism. And this is essentially... I mean, he doesn't, you know, put it exactly the way you put it, but what you're gesturing towards and what somebody like Graham Oppie might gesture towards is basically theoretical parsimony, right? This kind of view that we have that is, that we should try as far as possible to minimize theoretic commitment, right? Which in this case is cashed out by an appeal to a kind of ontological set of items, right? So we want to be able to explain the, the widest array of phenomena, observed phenomena, um, with the fewest amount of theoretical prediction uh, and, and um, uh, commitments, I should say. So, and 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 that is a balancing act, right? And you know, and you know, this this goes to something like I said, it's much broader, much deeper than just this one atheological argument for atheism, because this is essentially the argument where the arguments for metaphysical naturalism start to come. That's the this idea that there's a theoretical advantage to naturalism that is not possessed by um, theistic explanations of the world, um, or to the extent that there are ties in the sense that both theism or a naturalistic worldview might explain some phenomena um, equally well. Um, there's a kind of natural and a priori tiebreaker in favour of naturalism always because it is by definition, a metaphysically or ontologically more parsimonious worldview. I mean, after all, on naturalism, you've got just one category of reality, right? You've got the natural world. Now, of course, there's, there's debate about what constitutes the natural world, and different philosophers are going to have different accounts of that. But it's broadly speaking, as a, as a first pass, it's going to be something like space, time, matter, energy, um, composite items that are made out of those, those fundamental parts, perhaps other universes um, that science uh, tells us might exist. Um, those could all form part of the, of the natural world. And then you've got this kind of, if, especially if you're a theist, you don't just have the natural world, you've got the natural world and this other thing, right? Which is of a different, it's not just like another item, it's of a different ontological category. Um, and the question is always, from the naturalist's point of view, is why invoke this other ontological item? Um, it would only be justified if there truly were some phenomena that was not naturalistically tractable, or which could genuinely be better explained by an appeal to this, this, this metaphysical posit. Um, so I think that that's a perfectly, um, I think that that's ultimately what, what um, the virtues of naturalism, where the virtue of naturalism lies, is in its parsimony. Um, 
and its explanatory depth and, and, and breadth. Um, but of course, when, when you start talking like that, you can, you're not really talking the, the language of logical inconsistency, because of course, there's nothing logically inconsistent about some supernatural being or other and a natural world. We're talking there more along um, some sort of abductive argument or inference to the best explanation that motivates our theory choice. Okay, so let's, let's try a different response for the theist. Uh, but by the way, I, I'm an atheist, so, so I'm really doing my best here for the theist. But all right, let, let's give it another shot. Okay, so suppose the theist says this. One of the great goods in the world is freedom. Um, and it is the case that we want to maximize freedom. Um, and God would want to do that because freedom is good. And um, one of the ways to maximize freedom is to, um, to give us as many options as possible among religions that we can choose from. Um, and so God, God allows as many religions as possible. The question, this free will defense, um, goes to the question of what sort of worlds would God want, right? And what sort of worlds could God create given that he wants to create a world of significantly and robustly free creatures, right? Um, so the theist um, would likely say something along the lines of what you just said, right? So God doesn't just care about, you know, um, having a group of finite beings all agree that he exists, right? He wants something more. He wants um, a proper genuine relationship with these, with these free creatures. And he wants, and in order for that to happen, in order for there to be a genuine relationship, this proper bi-directional, um, uh, genuine interaction between the parties, there has to be freedom on the part of the finite creatures. And he can't create, so it's no good for him. He doesn't really care so much about creating a world where everybody just has this uniform set of beliefs. What he, what he really wants, the world he really wants to create is this um, relationally luxuriant world where everyone chooses him. Right? Ultimately, we all come to love and enter freely into a relationship with God. And um, as, you've, as you've said, um, this idea that freedom is itself a good, but also that freely chosen relationship is a good, right? Um, and then there's a question, a really difficult question, and it's a challenging question about, well, could God create a world of significantly free creatures who have the right doxastic mindsets? In other words, they have the right beliefs, right? There's no, there's no doxastic heterogeneity. They're all homogenous. All the religious people believe God exists and they believe the right things about how to interact with him. And, and this is the key thing, and they all freely choose to have this relationship with him. And that's a legitimate, I mean, that is a, that is a legitimate um, response. Um, many people find that response compelling um, because they think, well, Surely that's possible, right? Surely that's possible that that could be um, the case. And if that's just possibly the case, well, then you don't have a logical contradiction, right? Uh, I've just managed to give a consistent and coherent story uh, that neutralizes your arguments. So if, if the argument is phrased in this like, kind of robust sense that there's this incompossibility between God on the one hand and doxastic discord on the other, well, I've just managed to show how there could be a possible world where these two things actually coexist and it may be with um, you know, sufficiently robust free creatures 
Um, and some of them, guess what? They, they form the wrong beliefs and they freely choose not to enter into a relationship. And, and there we have it. Um, the atheist is not obviously without his um, resources in response to that. Um, the natural, well, there are a number of responses. The first is that there are a number of assumptions with that, um, that, that defense that, that might be offered on behalf of theism. One of them, of course, is an appeal to free will, a libertarian free will, which is itself a, I mean, as you guys will know, a very, very contentious topic in, um, in philosophy um, and in metaphysics. Um, there are many philosophers who don't think that metaphysical libertarianism um, or robust free will is even logically coherent. So of course, if they're right, then this kind of robust freedom that the theist wants to appeal to doesn't, is not itself a logically cons coherent or consistent concept, in which case neither God nor any creature that he creates can have it. So that would be one way to, to diffuse that argument. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just, just before you go into a second uh, defense, yeah. we, we just interviewed Mark Leon on, um, on free will. And uh, oh, yeah. for those who haven't watched that episode yet, we recommend it. Uh, and yeah. what, what he, he, he's a proponent of compatibilism, right? So compatibilism is the view that it's possible for the world to be determined and yet your actions are free. Um, and so you can imagine a world uh, just to boost your defense here, where um, God determines the world in such a way uh, that there are multiple religions, but everyone chooses. Well, this this doesn't boost your defense. This 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 is a, this is an objection to your defense. Uh, that, that, that that God God could create multiple religions, but it just so happens that He chooses that everyone that, that He sets up the deterministic chain that everyone lands up choosing His. Um, no, but the, yeah, I mean, but that's not consistent. That, would actually, that would actually, I mean, if that were possible, that's more grist for the atheist's mill, right? Because then right, right. That's, what think, that's what you would expect of, of, of a good God is to precisely determine the world in that way such that everybody comes to have the right doxastic set and they choose to have the relationship with him. Now, theists are going to say that that's not freedom of the world, right? So they will reject that compatibilist description. So you say they have, are, are libertarians. They, they're like yes. this very robust, right? So yes. they think that you need to have a world such that your prior determinants do not determine your, your actions. You, exactly. you know, no matter what comes before, you could choose any religion. Yes, yes. And they, and they will contend that that's the only kind of free will that matters. And that's the kind of free will God gave us. And because that's the kind of free will God gave us, it's not possible, and this is the thing, it's not possible for him to actualize a world where everybody has the right beliefs and, and this is the thing, freely chooses to enter into a relationship with him. Um, so one response that I gave is that, well, the, 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 the notion of free will that's being appealed to there is incoherent. That would be one way, right, to avoid it. The other way to avoid it, as you've just given it, is and that was going to be my second way, was to say, well, the true account of freedom of the will is compatibilism, right? If compatibilism is, in fact, uh, the true account of freedom of the will, and there's no logical inconsistency between being determined and being free, well, then God could have done that. Um, and he would have, and given that, well, clearly that's not the world we live in, then the God, can't, God can't have those properties that we wanted. And the third, the third um, move, and um, before we get to a, a, a more radical 
move. The third move is to actually question the axiological judgment that is being um, um, put forward here by the theist. The theist is assuming, maybe not unreasonably, but there is an assumption there about the value of freedom of the will. Um, not just that it is valuable, but that it is sufficiently weighty to outweigh any bads that might befall creatures who don't choose God. Right? By, by, axiological, God. by axiological, you mean like about value, right? That's... Yes, sorry, yes. Other, other relating to, to value. So there's a value judgment that sits um, at the core of this, this defense, right? One, that free will is uh, valuable. And two, more importantly, that it is sufficiently valuable as to outweigh any possible harms that might befall creatures that don't choose God. And while that might be common among certain people, it's not at all obvious, at least not to me, that freedom of the will outweighs everybody having a relationship with you know, the divine ultimate of all reality, right? even if they're determined to. It's not at all obvious to me. So, so more philosophical work has to be done there. But, the, but what I would say is that this objection that you've just raised and that we've been fleshing out here definitely has appeal to a lot of people. I mean, so I think we've got to grant that. It really touches on a number of um, pre-theoretic intuitions that we have about the value of freedom, um, about the importance we place on it in our lives, um, the value of freely chosen relationship. Um, and it does, on first blush, seem consistent. So if we're not going to take any one of those other problems and push those problems, all of which are, are, are very substantive themselves and very contentious, if we're going to, let's say we're, we're not that sort of atheist, we want to grab the bull by the horns, so to speak, I think the way to do it is to basically argue that it is possible for God to have robust freedom of the will and ensure that the entities that are created freely choose to enter into a relationship with him. And um, that is a very contentious claim. It will be hotly disputed by, by theists, but I think that it is, um, in fact, possible and feasible. Um, and it relates to what sorts of persons God is capable of actualizing um, and what God knows before he actualizes any given person. Um, and it relates, to, it starts getting very... Uh, Maybe we can pursue this, but again, it starts getting a little bit complicated because um, it ties into the possible persons that God could have actualized. And God knowing in advance of creation what each individual person who he actualizes would come to believe and freely do on the basis of those beliefs, what are called the counterfactuals of freedom. And on a sufficient, on a particular model of God's omniscience, uh, God has knowledge of all the counterfactuals of freedom, which are all the counterfactuals about what free agents would do in any given situation they found themselves. Um, and if he knows that, the question that the atheists should push, or where they should push back is, well, then he knows which set of persons he could actualize such that they would all freely come to have the right beliefs, and freely enter into a relationship with them. We know that among philosophers, for example, um, compatibilism and determinism are, are quite uh, you know, widely adopted. But among average Joes, most people think they have free will um, because they have the experience of making free choices. Um, and so it might be an unsuccessful strategy to say to someone, 
oh, you're saying that, you know, God wants free agents, but don't worry, there's no such thing as free will. You know, you're sort of digging deeper into a thing that they're going to find unpalatable. Um, so almost what you have to do is say, well, I'm going to accept for the sake of argument that we do have full free will in the most robust sense possible. And then I'm going to still try and explain to you why this is unsatisfactory. Now, one of the moves that you make is interesting is you say that um, we might be overvaluing freedom. Um, and I, I think there might be something in that in a response to the problem of evil. So in other words, if um, through our free will, we wind up, you know, torturing each other and murdering people and raping and all that sort of stuff, you might say, well, maybe it'd be better if we were a bit less free to do that stuff um, because the suffering that's generated is so bad. Um, but in the case of merely free to, to make choices about um, which faith to pick and assuming that really that there are no bad consequences to it. So that, in other words, all the religions that say, if you don't believe in, in our um, outcome, you're going to burn in hell. Well, they're all just wrong. Let's just assume that for the sake of argument. So there is no genuine cost to getting it wrong. Um, it might just be that you just don't wind up having this relationship or you don't wind up having this relationship on this iteration of the experiment. You know, uh, you get another chance. And as you say, there's, there's something interesting there about uh, if we do take God's knowledge seriously, that God is all knowing, um, then God could know in advance which of us are, are going to wind up with having a relationship with him because, you know, all the different options available to us are known and he can sort of see which, which path we ultimately chart to get to him. Um, and again, that might be less of a problem if you only get one go around the merry-go-round. Um, and if you keep going, then eventually he knows that all of you will wind up, you know, back in the flock, you know, back where you belong. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the permutations are really endless if you start changing um, the, the, the models of God, right? I mean, there are other models of God's omniscience. I mean, I put forward now like one model of God's omniscience, which is known as nolanism, which is where God has this knowledge of these, um, he has what's called middle knowledge, which includes this knowledge of these counterfactuals, particularly about what free creatures would do in any given circumstance. But some people reject that. You know, some people, some people say that's, that's an incoherent notion of God's knowledge. They're not modalists. And they embrace another view, something that's called open theism, where God doesn't even know the future. So he knows everything that is possible to be known, and the future is not possible to be known. So God can't guarantee, for example, that everybody ultimately um, enters into this free relationship with him, but that doesn't count against God, even though he doesn't know the future. And, you know, the, the debate rages uh, in theism about these, the plausibility of these different models um, of God's omniscience, say, um, the debate between monanists and, and open theists, um, for example. And those are, and depending on which model of God's om, uh, omniscience you invoke, um, it may have different consequences for, for the argument that I've been, been putting forward. In, and you must also concede, though, that some models of God's omniscience may make the problem even worse. So just to take a, a, as an example now, um, this um, open theism I was talking about, this is the view roughly that um, God doesn't know future contingent facts. So in other words, he doesn't know the future in the same way that you or I don't know the future. So before creating the universe, um, he does his level best with the information he has available, but he doesn't know that um, what Jason is ultimately going to believe 
and choose to do on the basis of that belief, nor you, nor I, nor any possible person that he could choose to actualize. Um, now, that might solve one problem, but it might make it might make other problems spring into relief, right? So you now might wonder, well, I mean, first, first you're severely limiting God's knowledge. Most theists are not going to be happy with that. I mean, they, most theists are going to want to say something like God knows future contingent facts. So that's, that's already, your, you seem to be downgrading God's knowledge. Um, but there seems to now be a, a new problem that's developed, which is that if God doesn't know the future, he can't guarantee what's best for his creatures, right? He can't guarantee it. Um, and it's often considered to be part of the theistic tradition in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, at least mainstream tradition, that there's this thing called divine providence, right? Which is that ultimately everything accords with God's plan and God's plan is ultimately guaranteed to be for the good, right? And this open theistic model of God's omniscience, just as one point of contact that we're discussing, seems to do substantial violence to that notion of divine providence because if God can't know the future, he can't plan to take the future into account. Um, and so there's no guarantee that things will turn out for the best. And in our particular case here, there's no guarantee that everybody will have the, cor the correct um, beliefs about him. There's no guarantee that they'll have the correct beliefs about how to um, achieve their um, greatest good in relation to him. Um, and there's, no, and there's no guarantee that the free creatures that he creates are going to um, uh, freely choose to be in a relationship with him, right? Um, but given that he doesn't know the future, he knew that at the time of creation, right? So you get this real sense that if that is the model that you're employing for, of God's omniscience, you get this real um, sense that God was reckless, right? He gambled with the soteriological destiny, uh, soteriology just meaning of and relating to salvation. Uh, he gambled essentially with the soteriological destiny of um, all the finite creatures that he chose to actualize. Um, one way I, I like to put this is that God played, um, he played roulette at the creation casino, but it was us that was left to settle the debt with the house. Um, so the image you're left with there is not very consoling. Uh, divine providence seems to be eviscerated. And you now have serious qualms about God's character, right? What sort of heavenly father plays roulette, essentially, with the created order, um, where the finite creatures that pay the price for their false beliefs um, or for failing to have the relationship with God, it befalls them, not on him. And so, uh, Mark, you and I are both lawyers. Um, you will, and uh, Jason might not know this term, but there's a form of intention in uh, the law, at least South African law, called dolus eventualis, which is a form of culpable intention. And, and the dolus eventualis basically means that a person um, who foresees the possibility of harm uh, ensuing, but acts recklessly towards it, um, is still culpable for that harm, right? Even if they don't directly intend that it should happen. And we get that this, this sense now with, with God, who supposingly has this kind of knowledge. Um, 
he, he, he creates the world knowing that there's a risk, right? There's a real risk that people are going to go wrong doxastically. They're, and even if they go right, they're not necessarily going to enter and freely into a relationship with him. But he proceeds regardless. And that's not a very comforting image. And it's certainly not an image that, you know, an atheist is going to, to look at and say, well, that, that's, that instantiates perfect and unsurpassable love and concern for, for finite creatures. So it just, I mean, that was a bit of a tangent, but it just goes to show how, you know, these attempts to, you know, give different accounts of God's knowledge um, in an attempt to make things better can actually end up even making it uh, worse. Yeah, so what we might have is a God who's kind of like a bit of a deadbeat drunkard gambler. He's like, ah, kids, I tried my best. <laughs> I rolled the dice. I had a couple of beers. You know, I let you do your own thing. I wasn't going to be too interventionist. You know, you turned out okay. Some of you, I mean, some of you died. Some of you, some of you did pretty badly. But what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and this is a story waiting to be written. This, this has to be. <laughs> And that, you know, that might be, that might be fine for somebody who says, look, you know, the God I believe in is a kind of, he's a bit of a reckless rogue, you know, and I'm okay with that. Then of course, my, the arguments I've been putting forward is not going to cut any ice with that sort of God. It's going to still cut ice for, for the person who wants to hold on to a perfectly and unsurpassable loving being that is fundamentally concerned with the well-being of each and every single individual person. Um, and whose well-being is ultimately bound up with freely choosing a relationship. Okay, I mean, so, so I'm very curious about something. So you mentioned Schellenberg's account earlier, and I'm curious to hear what that is. But just before you give it, um, so I, I imagine there's a very interesting challenge here, right, for the theist. So in, in, in responding to your argument. So the best type of response, as far as the theist is concerned, is one which keeps his version of God, but still uh, maintains his existence. So in other words, shows somehow that his version of God doesn't suffer from this problem. Um, then the second best option is to say, I'm going to alter my version of God slightly, right? If you alter it too much, well, then it's so far divorced from what I originally believed that it's no longer my religion anymore. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a solution that throws the baby away with the bathwater. The theist wants the smallest possible change to his view to, to, to solve the problem. Um, I mean, my preferred solution would not be that it would be a pyrrhic solution for the, for, for the theist, which is pantheism, right? So I'm a pantheist. I, I, I like the idea that, um, that of rejecting these core tenets of, of um, Christianity, that God is all good, all knowing, or all powerful. You get rid of those and you just have God as divinity that's identical with the, the universe and the universe is identical with God. And you get rid of this problem because, you know, if, if God's not all good, all knowing, all powerful, well, you know, he doesn't care whether you come back to his religion or not. Um, but, but that's not going to work for the, for the Christian because it's so far removed from Christianity yeah. that it's not Christianity anymore, right? So, in fact, you would be stoned for suggesting such a thing at some point. Right, right, right. Well, thank, thank goodness now I'm back to you in a safe space. We can, we can float the idea of pantheism, right? Well, atheists wouldn't have been treated much better. Okay, so, um, so, so now what is Schellenberg's solution? Is it yeah, so to be clear about what Schellenberg's solution is, is it's, it's, less, it's not a solution to this argument, remember, because Schellenberg is an atheist. So he's got his own argument called the argument from non-resistant non-belief. 
where he points out that there's an incompatibility between a certain kind of believer, a non-resistant non-believer, and the existence of this omniperfect being. So for that reason, Schellenberg, if you read his work, um, Divine Hiddenness and Human Reason, which is his um, uh, landmark text from the 90s on that, um, and his more recent book, um, The Hiddenness Arguments, Philosophy's New Challenge to Belief in God, um, he lays out in, in the most rigorous form between those two books, um, his um, reasons for being an atheist, which is his argument for non-resistant non-belief. But he doesn't want to throw out religion. So in other words, what he wants to do is he wants to salvage the notion of religion, even if theism is false. Right? So that, and, and by theism, we mean this view that there's this personal being that is conscious, that has all these wonderful omni-attributes, right? So part of his project is to salvage the, the baby of religion from the bathwater of theism, right? Chuck out theism, but salvage what might still be um, rational, right? Um, and he's got this wonderful view, which I, I really like, because I think it gets to the core of what religion is about. And he's got this great term, which he defines as ultimism. Right? So ultimism um, is a very minimalist thesis but it has really interesting entailments if it's true, right? And he sees ultimism as essentially the, the core of all religious belief, right? And ultimism has three theses, right? So very minimalist theses. The first is that there is an aspect of reality that is deepest. So that's what you can call it the metaphysical thesis, right? There's a deepest level of reality, right? Secondly, that there is a, that this reality that is metaphysically deep, so in other words, it's like the deepest explanatory fact for why anything, so per se, is also simultaneously an axiological ultimate. So we defined axiology earlier as of and relating to value. So this reality is not just some deep explanatory fact. It's, it, it instantiates and expresses ultimate value, right? And the third aspect is that this reality is soteriologically ultimate. So I've used the word soteriology before, earlier, which means of and relating to salvation. And the idea is that in relation to this reality, human beings and conscious creatures can achieve their greatest good. Right? So, so ultimism is this, and that's all it says, right? It's that there is a reality that is metaphysically ultimate, axiologically ultimate and soteriologically ultimate. And then he says, well, that could be true even if theism is false. So in other words, he's got this really great um, phrase, which is that theism is ultimism with a face. Theism is just a personal ultimate reality. God is supposed to be metaphysically ultimate, axiologically ultimate and soteriologically ultimate, but as conceived as a person. But of course, that could be false, even if ultimism is true, right? There are many different ways he contends uh, to flesh out ultimism. And he thinks that we're at a very early stage in our religious and metaphysical musings, um, and that even if theism is ultimately false, or perfect being theism, at least, the sort we've been talking about, um, it's far too soon to rule out ultimism. Um, and it's for this reason that he's also agnostic about metaphysical naturalism, because metaphysical naturalism, if true, denies the existence of this kind of reality. 
right? It denies that there is um, this transcendent reality above and beyond the natural order. 